Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Ron White, I got to say the full name because you have the name that is just like my favorite comedian. I usually get Robbie Robertson, oh, the guitar player. But Ron, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Hi, I'm Ron White. I'm a, I'm a Kennedy assassination lifelong buff. I don't consider myself to be an expert by any means compared to some of the people that are out there. But I have written a book about it, and my perspective is a historical perspective. My interest started when I was in high school. I was in ROTC class at the moment that John F. Kennedy was shot. Uh, it was 1963. I was a sophomore in high school. I was in uniform, and our captain came uh, before us as a, a company and marched us up to the gym and had a stand at attention uh, and wait the half an hour or so until they had declared the president dead. And it was shortly after that that our class ended. But that was a powerful moment, needless to say. Here I am in the paramilitary, the, the ROTC unit, and, uh, and the president, our, our commander-in-chief, gets killed. From that moment on, um, I was deeply impressed and emotionally impressed inside. Uh, in 1966 or 65, I forget which, uh, Mark Lane published Rush to Judgment, the very first book on the Kennedy assassination. And it was an investigation into the, the circumstances, the details, things that the official officialdom had said about it. And he basically cut them anew and he ripped them completely apart. And I was very impressed with that book. A short time later, Edward Epstein, who was a graduate student at Cornell uh, University, published Inquest, which was an examination of the inquest into the body and what happened. And, and I read that when I was equally impressed. And that got me started on, on a track. Back in the day, uh, there was a magazine called Ramparts Magazine. That was a, a progressive investigative magazine. And they published an article on the Kennedy assassination. Again, it was very revelatory, added more new information. And then as, as the years went by, more and more books were written, and I kept buying them and reading them and became pretty well informed on the assassination. I bought the uh, original summary volume of the Warren Commission and read it. Uh, then I went to the library and started pouring through their 18 volumes and digging through those to find out what they had to say. And the 18 volumes really, in many ways, contradicted the summary volume and in other ways demonstrated that the research that they had done simply wasn't complete. Now, something else that went hand in hand with my research was I was a debater in high school and I learned the art of research. I'd always been a reader when I was a boy. I was crippled for almost four years. I walked on crutches at a disease called leg perth calvary, named after the three doctors who, who classified the disease. And uh, during those years, from ages six to almost 10, my mom would take me down to the library and drop me off. I couldn't go out in the neighborhood and play. It wouldn't do any good. Couldn't do much. So I hope the back is a background, by the way. My wife is talking out in the other room. I can hear, but you're, you're fine. Okay. Um, and... During those years, she would drop me to the library and I would just go read things. I'd just go to a section I thought looked interesting and, and read the books. And I read hundreds of books on all kinds of subjects as a little kid and became quite the proficient reader. I always scored real well on reading tests, needless to say, for the rest of my life in education. But um, I learned to dig deeply into things. And, and I've always been that way for the rest of my entire life. I've been a researcher. So as I read the books on the Kennedy assassination, as the years went by, I realized, I, for my satisfaction, that they were never going to put a finger on who pulled the trigger. And the more years that passed and the farther that we got away from the Kennedy assassination, who pulled the trigger or triggers became less important to me than, than why it happened and why it happened where it happened. Why Dallas, Texas? Why that fall in 1963? Uh, why didn't they do it earlier? Why didn't they let him live? And, Maybe why didn't happen later? So I, I got involved in, in the book I wrote, uh, JFK Scorpio Rising, is an analysis of the historical causation of the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I begin by going clear back to the beginning of the state of Texas and looking at a couple of things, looking at what, what the personality of the state of Texas, 
the character of the state of Texas became because of the way it was formed and because of its early history. The second thing I looked at early in Texas history was people, family connections that were important to people in Dallas that day. And the most important one, of course, was Lyndon Johnson. And I went back to his great-grandfather in the 1800s and his great-great-granddaddy and what they did and, and how they formed the family that then shaped LBJ and turned him into the person that he became. Um, one of the things I became convinced of in my studies over the years was that Lyndon Johnson kind of had to know something about what was going on. He was deeply connected to the state of Texas. In addition, J. Edgar Hoover was from Texas. The Dulles brothers who, who shaped foreign policy and the Central Intelligence Agency from the end of World War II forward were from the state of Texas and many, many other people who were connected in ways. Um, billionaires, uh, there were probably more billionaires in Texas at that time than any place else in the world. The oil industry, the land industry uh, gave these people their money. And especially beginning in the 20th century and around World War II, before and after, but especially in the center of the century, billionaires really shaped what the country was doing. And that was a new concept politically. And, and it was not a well-publicized concept politically. Now we know that the 1% runs practically everything. They, they dictate who gets elected to office. They, they set out the policies and the laws that are going to be written, uh, the directions we're going to follow, even foreign policy. And, and they are the ones who interact with people in other countries to help shape the policies in, in, in both nations, whether that's Germany, Russia, other places in Europe, the United States, whatever it happens to be. One of the interesting tidbits historically was that when Alan Dulles was going through World War II, he was in what's called the Office of Strategic Services, OSS. And when he got out of World War II, he, he had been pegged because of his family's power and money to be an influential person. So during World War II, he was sent to Switzerland to, to be there on behalf of the United States government to keep an eye on what was going on in Germany up close and personal. What a few history books talk about and not many people have ever heard is that his main job was to protect assets of both Germany and the United States of those billionaires and those multimillionaires so that what Hitler was doing wouldn't take their power away. And, and then he subsequently, after World War II, became the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, while his brother then became um, in charge of foreign relations for the United States. He was our Secretary of State. Um, my, my research it uncovers historical facts like that that are relevant to why the assassination happened. I talk about the, the influence and the power of the oil industry in Texas and the oil men in Texas and their connections to the, to the politicians in the United States, people in law enforcement like Edgar Hoover, uh, and demonstrate how in all likelihood, they're the ones who shaped what led to the assassination. I don't draw a line directly between them and who pulled the trigger, but I don't think I really need to. I don't think that's critically important. What I do in my book is I, I talk about the causation, the people, and I all but close the loop uh, of actually saying who pulled the trigger. I'm a, I'm, I'm a firm believer, even though my book doesn't say it, that there was more than one assassin. Whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald actually pulled the trigger, number one, I think it's, in physics, I think it's highly unlikely that he pulled the trigger. There's all kinds of books and research out there that talk about that. The 3.5 to... 4.2 seconds in which the bullets were fired. It'd be almost virtually impossible for a man using a Mannlicher Carcano, which was famous for being a crappy rifle in Italy during World War II, that, a, that the Mannlicher Carcano could hit a president who's moving on the angle he's moving with the trees and the signs and all that. But a guy could focus like that and do that. It's almost physically impossible. The army after World War II in an attempt to show that Oswald could have done it, took their top 10 riflemen and had them set up targets. They didn't replicate the conditions in Dallas. They simply showed that in the space of time, 3.5 to 4.2 seconds, 
you could hit a target three times using a different rifle, by the way, not the Mannlicher Karkow. And it didn't prove a thing. What it, what it, what it, not about the assassination itself, what it proved was the desperation in the political establishment that they would use the top marksmen in the army to try to demonstrate that Oswald shot the president. That in itself is very telling. You follow my thinking? Yeah. To make sense? Yeah. So what I do in my book is, is bring things like that in that demonstrate the culpability of the government historically and, and historical causation behind the assassination. I probably would point more fingers towards Hoover only because I've been learning more about COINTELPRO and a lot of FBI operations that were going on a little bit before. I find that a lot of like for discussions to the general public about the JFK assassination, you see eyes tend to roll over. And I go, it's because it gets labeled into that conspiracy subject. But if I can show you prior history of why there's this conspiracy aspect to JFK, it starts to make a little bit more sense. I think people just think all these come out with JFK. Oh, it's not true at all. I mean, I know a little bit about Alan Dulles in Indonesia with a gold mine that was down there for the Rockefeller family as well, too. I mean, I know a, a little bit. I'm just a little bit hazy on the political climate of Texas. I know he was warned about going to Texas when or Dallas when he arrived there, and I know that's why Lyndon Johnson was on the ticket. At least I've had that suggested by a couple of researchers through my conversations. Um, but I mean, as much as I know a little bit about general Walker as well, too, I mean, I, I've seen the video of Kennedy get, getting a hat and then him trying to put on the hat and then he pulls it down. Like I'll wear it when I get to the white house, but you felt something in the air in that video where it, you could say it could be speculation, but everyone was cheering and all went silent right when he was about to put on that hat. And the minute that he didn't and pulled it down, they all kind of gave like a sigh. And then it just goes back to like dead silence again, where I was like, that's weird. And I'm feeling that through a video. And I'm sure plenty of other people would have that reaction as well, too. Like it was a conforming thing. I have no clue. Like I said, that's speculation. You can't really use that for anything. But it, when you watch a clip like that, you start to understand like what were people – did people really care about Kennedy? I've seen him give speeches and waves and all these types of things. Everyone looks excited to see him. But what was Dallas thinking? How was everyone reacting? You know, were there wanted for treason posters that were being passed around? Who made those posters? And I'm hoping you can maybe enlighten me a little bit about the political climate of Dallas, some of the big oil men too. Nobody's ever really gone into any of those figures. The night before, well, a couple of things. Dallas, Texas, politically, was extremely right-wing, extremely conservative, even for that time. Um, it was the home of what was known as the John Birch Society. And the John Birch Society was first built by two men who came out of the Latter-day Saint Church in the early 1950s to create an anti-communist frenzy. And they named it after a pilot who was shot down over China uh, between, I think it was like, I think it might've been 1949. I forgot the exact year. And, um, he was just an American pilot who got shot down. They needed a cause to celebrate. They needed someone whose name they could use. So they grabbed him. He had no particular significance in the news or anything like that. It, it had just been a new story that he had been shot down over communist China. So they, they began the John Birch Society as a way of attempting to influence the government. And they did it in Dallas. That's why you had the posters and, and the right-wing frenzy in Dallas. That wasn't the average person. That was just the political right-wing. The night before the assassination, I'm sure you've heard about the party, the, or maybe you haven't heard about the party. It, can you enlighten me a little bit? It was in an oil man's home. Um, oh, no, I forgot his name. I don't think it was H.L. Hunt. H.L. Hunt was the number one oil man who was involved with the right wing. And then there was, he was Haroldson L. Hunt and his sons. And then there was a, a Clint. Murchison? Clint Murchison, thank you. I couldn't remember his last name. And Clint Murchison uh, had a party the night before at his home. And he invited a lot of the society in Dallas. And he invited a lot of the people who were going to be in Dallas because of the Kennedy visit. Um, most of them were Republicans and right-wingers and conservatives. And although nobody has pictures and there's no recordings and there's no physical proof of it, almost from the moment after the assassination, that party was talked about, there were people who talked about the fact that 
The party generally closed down at midnight, but LBJ and some other significant oil men and other political men uh, remained after for about three or four hours. During that night, the Secret Service men who were there to accompany the motorcade and John Kennedy were also invited to a party. And most of them didn't go home until five or six o'clock in the morning, and they were pretty well drunk. Um, some of them have admitted it and talked about it, but not very many. But I've got a, I've got a section on that in my book, uh, some, some writing about that in my book. They made sure that, that those guys were not at the top of their game. Not one. Okay. Um, that's another thing that indicates that, that there, there was a conspiracy of some sort, that there was an effort on the part of some pretty big people without actually saying who it is, what they did, because it's innuendo. You can only infer. You can't say specifically, this is exactly what happened. Well, the facts of the matter is one of those Secret Service members should have lost their job. Their duty was to protect the president, and they were not in service to do that the next right. day. Right. That's right. Um, there was a great debate the morning of the assassination about what the sheriff's deputies were going to do, what the sheriff's officers were going to do, what the Dallas Police Department was going to do. Because normally they would spill out across the motorcade route and be extra protection there. That morning, the head of the sheriff's department called his men in, and they all stood at the sheriff's department. It was on the motorcade route, but it wasn't protective in any way. Um, at the beginning, before Kennedy actually got in the motorcade, uh, the person who is normally in charge of the motorcade is, is one of the Secret Service men. Instead, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, Vice President, was the one who directed what would and wouldn't happen at the last minute at the airport before they ever left. He was largely responsible for the bubble top not being on the car for making that decision, not the president, uh, not Kennedy. Um, he decided who would sit where. You know, he positioned himself, and he would normally be in the, the second car in the motorcade. He positioned himself farther back so that when the shots rang out, he wouldn't be anywhere near them. And when the shots rang out, he was already in a ducked position, and that's been verified. He went down low, LBJ did, in his car, so there was no chance of anybody hitting him with anything. Like, these are all things that are historical, that never got a lot of attention, but they're in all kinds of books out there. You can read about it. So politically, what I learned about these men that started the John Birch Society was that they had a much broader purpose. It is the, and I hate to, I hate to, I hate to talk about religion. I, I really do. I don't like besmirching anybody. But organized religions have forever attempted to put their stamp on the world and in many places take control of the world to the extent that they could began with the roman empire when it created the, the roman catholic the roman church which became the roman catholic church it was the emperor doing it first well then as you go down through history different churches have tried to put their stamp and then take control these men whether it was officially on behalf of the of the lds church or not their mission was to teach their beliefs to the world and that meant they had to have political influence. And, and so they set up the John Birch Society as a political arm. And, and, it, and it has been in existence. It's not anything near what it used to be. But in the 1960s, it was becoming bigger and bigger. It was throughout the, the last century. And uh, part of taking over the world, taking over control of the United States politically, would be to put who they want in office. And I, and I believe that that's one of the reasons, that's one of the historical causes behind people doing the things that they did, making the decisions that they made. There was a lot of influence going on. Now, you mentioned connections with LBJ. I mean, did, is there any more influence with like big oil tycoons or anything? I'm, the areas I've kind of focused in have been a lot when it comes to just weird red flags you can raise to people. Like there's three shots that they found on the floor of the book depository building, but then one jammed in the rifle. Where it's like if you just saw Kennedy's head explode, why are you reloading? You should be getting out of Dodge. You know what I mean? And there's just a, there's a few things that don't make sense. You got a job there a month before. 
you know, the route wasn't published until like November 17th or 18th. And then he had five days to prepare and picked a small window when he could have picked a opposite window, I think from the North Northeast end or something like that, where you would have been right next to the staircase to run all the way down and be caught on the second floor with the story they made up. It's just about trying to like, look at it and find the inconsistencies. I'm more about the historical thing kind of as you are, but just things I can back up now with a documentation. I mean, learning about organized crime and the influence there than how, the FBI's even influenced media and you know there's all this type of stuff that's going on makes it really difficult where I like John Orr's explanation of this where he says it's the best murder fantasy you've ever seen it's got mob figures it's got FBI it's got uh, so much stuff going on in it where it's like yeah there's really any avenue or theory you want to put out there you can run down that because there is just evidence on everything which makes it very suspicious yes well about Oswald, the number when you talk about what you were just talking about, the various details of the, the actual assassination scene, the physics of it don't work. They just don't. That he was downstairs leaning against a, uh, I believe it was a, a vending machine, just casual, not breathing heavy. Within a few seconds of the assassination, is a virtual impossibility. Who picked him up? Who was in the car? The speculation is that Dave Ferry picked him up when he left the school book depository. That's anybody's guess, but but we know somebody picked him up. That doesn't happen unless it's pre-planned, okay? Um, because it was very shortly, within minutes of the assassination that that happened. But let's look at a couple of other things historically. Um, one of the more recent speculations, and it's DNA uh, discovered on the sixth floor of the school book depository, is the DNA of Mac Wallace, Malcolm Wallace. Do you know him? A little bit. Okay, Mac Wallace, in uh, right after World War II, he had a girlfriend who, who became the girlfriend of a man who ran a golf course in Dallas. And Mac was, a, was an attorney, okay? He had gotten his law degree, he was a practicing attorney. And he really got upset with this manager of the golf course. And he went to the golf course and killed him. And Mac needed a way to avoid going to prison or being executed, you know, for the rest of his life and going to prison for the rest of his life and be executed, whichever. And he had a buddy who knew LBJ and they put their gears in motion. And Mac basically, he was convicted, but he was free walking around within a very short time. And with that, he owed LBJ. He became an owned man as the mafia would like to say it, okay? And from that point forward, he did uh, LBJ's dirty work. And there's plenty of literature out there that talks about how he was involved in killing people for Lyndon Baines Johnson. And it, it's fascinating because he murdered a guy and, and the evidence, this is later on down the road, the evidence was simply covered up, it was buried under so much red tape and things that they were never able but there was nobody else it could have been it had to be mac wallace that committed the murder and there's evidence to prove that well the recent dna evidence shows him on the opposite end of the sixth floor at the other open window and mac wallace became uh, a marksman a highly trained assassin and he may have been a person up there firing as well or maybe instead of we don't know that's one historical threat. Another historical threat is Oswald himself. In about 1953, David Ferry was uh, a man who ran a Civil Air Patrol squadron. Civil Air Patrol was a military training organization that was set up at the, well during World War II, actually. So we would have civilians who would keep an eye on the skies, some of whom learned to be pilots, um, to create a civilian air force in case we were invaded. And after World War II, it continued, and Ferry became one of the leaders of, of a squadron in New Orleans. And one of his young acolytes was Lee Harvey Oswald. And, and a couple of other people who Oswald knew, whose names popped up in the assassination all those years later. So Ferry then squired Oswald and another one of his buddies into uh, the Marines. 
and they went to uh, Japan and, and, and to, I think it's Okinawa, I believe. I'm not sure. I thought, the I thought it was right Atsugi. Now. Yeah, it's Atsugi Air Base. I, where was Atsugi? Was it in Japan? I think it was in, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he got a venereal disease in the line of duty. I asked Blakey about it and he doesn't have an answer for me where I'm just like, I, I guess it must have a lot of war uh, people were going overseas and technic, you know, fooling around a little bit with some of the local stuff. And I think, yeah, I don't know. In the line of duty is just a crazy example to have on a document. <laughs> well, Oswald went to, he frequented a club, which was known to be a club where spies hang out. And uh, and he had a uh, a Japanese girlfriend who, after the assassination, was verified to be a Russian spy. Um, and he probably contracted his venereal disease in that club, more than likely. Pumping for um, information, I knew it. Pardon? I said pumping for information, I knew it. I'm just, it was a joke. That's okay, that's okay. Little details always help. Um, but Oswald uh, was working in intelligence then. He learned Russian. Uh, the guys used to make fun of him in in his barracks in California when he was learning Russian. Before he ever went to Atsugi, he was trained in Russian. They sent him off to a school. He learned Russian, came back to the base. He would read Pravda sitting in his bunk. Pravda is a Russian newspaper back then. I don't know if it still exists or not. Um, but he was obviously being trained to do something for intelligence. Atsugi, uh, he, he translated the tapes that were the recordings that were sent back from the U-2 overflights. The U-2 was a high, very high-level spy plane. Years later, Francis Gary Powers was shot down over Russia, allegedly shot down. I don't think he was shot down at all. I think he crash-landed on purpose. Um, and there's lots of literature out there about that as well. The plane just simply wasn't it wasn't shot down. It wasn't damaged enough to be shot down. Um, so Oswald learned Russian, got involved in, in things having to do with intelligence. When he was mustered out, he was mustered out with a less than honorable discharge. Within about 60 to 90 days, he was on his way to Russia. Now, the records have not come out that says he worked for CIA or DIA, but there's virtually no other conclusion. When he went to Russia, he went through Europe, he went through all, the, all these channels. He had the, the, the dishonorable discharge so that Russia would think he was, in fact, disloyal, and he could pledge allegiance to Russia and go there. He had a mission when he was there. There was a KGB colonel who wanted to defect the United States, and through intelligence channels, we were working to try to get him out. The only thing he asked was that his niece be gotten out. She was the only member of the family that he was really concerned about being in Russia. She was young. So Oswald's job was to get her out, and he married her. Her name was Marina. And so he brought her back to the United States. When he came to the United States, he didn't go through normal channels, normal clearances. If he had been a spy for Russia, which is what was claimed after the assassination, there would have been all kinds of red tape. The man would have been stopped cold. He wasn't. He went right straight back to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, he did more intelligence work. And his connections were to people in the building that he worked out of that where the CIA was also officed. Um, the great dust-up in August of 1963 when he was outside and got into it with anti-Castro-Cubans, the whole thing was staged. Yeah, he went to a jail and then immediately asked to go see an FBI officer. Exactly. That's right. I mean, he, there's virtually no question he had intelligence connections. So who put him in the school book depository and why? In all likelihood, the only thing I can infer and, and reason, and there's no proof, no physical proof, is that he was put there because of the mission re regarding Kennedy and that he was a fall guy. If he wasn't one who pulled the trigger, which I don't think he was, he was never a marksman. And the, and the rifle was all wrong, so I don't think he was the triggerman. He clearly didn't know that he was a fall guy. I don't think anybody would be willing to go in on that. It just makes me wonder what – I mean obviously he worked there. I don't – I know a lot of people try and have him like not at all, and I've heard some people say he was there to set up the whole sixth-floor building before. I've heard many different perspectives on it. I mean imagine uh, the CIA not have anybody watching or the FBI not have anybody secretly watching. I mean you have a guy flash a Secret Service badge on the 
Noel to a bunch of people where people claim that there's a secret service man up there. That was never pursued at all, which was interesting. But I would have to think you would have some undercover agents of some sort if you're going to set up for a fall guy. I mean, if you make it look like Oswald, I figured Oswald would have been in on it on some point. I have this is the confusing part about the whole story aspect of things where why would you take a shot from your work? It just to me, that's just nuts. It's like crapping where you eat. And then you go and kill a cop afterwards and then go to a theater where it's just like, look, that's the weirdest day. I would just go home and take a nap. And and there's there are witnesses at that theater who report two different people as Lee Harvey Oswald in, in two different places doing two different things inside the theater. Um, One was arrested in the balcony. Yeah, so was there a body double? More than likely. But let me shine another light on, on the setting uh, on the sixth floor. Years ago, I worked in, in Republican politics. And in Rockford, Illinois, which just happened to be at that time, the number two John Birch Center in the United States. It had almost as many as they had in Dallas. And I was not an arch conservative, but I was a Republican. And I got on the city council. I was elected to the city council. I was being considered for the state house and so on. But most importantly, I became an advance man for the Republican Party. Advance men are the people who go out in advance of a visit by a candidate. And they scope out the location. They, they look at all the buildings. They look at the entire parade route. They work with the local pol uh, party coordinators to plan everything out. And, and you have to understand that all those years back, minute to minute to minute, every single minute, every building, every dignitary, every person, everything was planned out. There wasn't anything left to chance that they could possibly leave to chance. So, for example, if I was doing a visit for Gerald Ford or a visit for Ronald Reagan uh, in a city, my job working with all these other people was to go over the physical route from the moment they disembarked from an airplane to the moment they embarked and left. And every dinner, every everything, okay? We made sure there were no people hanging out of windows, that there were no windows open, that there was nothing on that parade route that would allow for an assassin. Knowing that as an advanced man, and I look at the Kennedy assassination, hmm, why were windows open on the sixth floor of the school book depository? And then you read what, what happened, and the Secret Service was not given that they weren't given the dog leg. The dog leg, as you probably have heard, was was a change in the route, like 24 hours before. And it was never checked out. That dog leg was never checked out. And that's where he was hit. Um, that would never have happened if the Secret Service had been allowed to do its job. And the person who could interfere with that was, was the Vice President, Lyndon Baines Johnson. He was the only person who could interfere with it. No one else had any kind of authority. So... I can tell you that it was a setup. That much I can tell you from my own experience as an advanced man. Did you ever look at the argument that JFK and Lyndon Johnson got into at the airport when when they were uh, talking about Connolly? Johnson wanted Connolly to ride in his vehicle. Do you, do you know what that's about? What it was about was that's what I was talking about. Lyndon Johnson, the one who decided who would sit where and what order the cars would go in. Um, he wanted control and he took control. And, and he won the argument. So why did he want Connolly in that vehicle? Um, that's that's up to speculation. There's thinking that it was time for Connolly to go, and so they wanted him dead too. I don't really believe that. Um, normally, the front seat would be a Secret Service man who would whip around and protect the president, and, and that didn't happen either. I've heard normally the Secret Service people are in the front seat. I've heard people say that Connolly um, was Lyndon Johnson's friend and he was trying to move him out of the way or something like that. But Kennedy wanted him to ride with him. And then there's a statement, I think, by Kennedy where he says, you know, he's not if he, he's not riding with me, he's not riding with you, then he can fucking walk. And it, it's something like that where it's just like it, it makes it I mean, it doesn't look good for Lyndon Johnson at all. I always listen into that. I think one of the first phone calls that I ever heard uh, recording of him talking to Hoover and they were talking about the shots fired. And he said, how many shots were fired? Three. And we got all of them. And um. He goes, Rennie fired at me. He goes, no, I'll hit Kennedy. And it was like, to me, it doesn't seem like a man that orchestrates the plot, but I definitely believe that he assisted in the cover-up. Um, 
Absolutely. I, I agree. I don't think he orchestrated. He couldn't. There was no way with his busy life. Uh, although he had, he took a leave, sort of, if I can call it that, a leave of absence for a couple of months leading up to the assassination. He was in Texas, in Dallas, and with his friends and his buddies. He wasn't doing vice presidential business before the assassination, which is also extremely suspicious. When it comes to Lyndon Johnson and his connections with Dallas, I mean, did he have any, at least that was known at the time, of any big connections with like, like someone who owns the Book Depository Building or anybody that were like orchestrated or giant oil? I wouldn't say oil people. I'm not going to keep going to that, but just big connections like money makers. I mean, the thing with Lyndon Johnson is Lyndon Johnson had a bunch of scandals going out at him before he became president, and they all dropped. Now, what that is, that's your intelligence agencies. Their intelligence agency's job is to basically cover up a lot of that stuff, a lot of the scandals and all the stuff that hits the press. That's their duty to do so. And you're in trouble when a scandal does hit because that means your intelligence agencies are mad. But what that does prove evidence-wise is that intelligence agencies can cover up a whole hell of a lot. And we see that with the media connection, and we see that later on in the case as well, too, and how long it took for a lot of this documentation and things that even are being held back now. So – Whatever you look at the case, whether you want to take out the who or the why, there's corruption, and it's now about trying to assess where that corruption is, which is what I've been doing, and that's why I appreciate your historical context on things as well too because there's a lot of speculation, as you know, in the JFK assassination, which makes it extremely difficult to understand. Yes, yes. So let's talk about the media. Beginning in the 20th century, the big waste, even going back to the Civil War, newspapers in the Civil War ran with the military. They went to battles and sites and, and they got to know the generals and, and that's how they got their information to publish. So connections, friendships were established. You get up into World War I and you had people, reporters who were planted on the scene, uh, traveling with various armed forces or in a military office or in Washington, D.C., whatever. By the time World War II came, Propaganda became very important. It just, the, the government and intelligence knew that they needed to have the people on their side, which means they had to have the media on their side reporting things that, that they would get a sympathetic ear. Okay, And so they began planting people in World War II and using them for intelligence purposes. Intelligence agents were hired into news organizations, and, and the news organizations knew it, and it was on purpose. So that, so that they could be directed to do the things that needed to be done to help the United States government. By the time of the Kennedy assassination, the coverage of the assassination, who was CIA and who wasn't, you can't put your finger on it because we don't have the personnel list, but you have to wonder about people like Dan Rather, who was in, in Dallas that day reporting, and from that point on, his career just exploded, and, and other people. The connection between the media and intelligence, they are interconnected in ways that are unforgivable in terms of free press because it totally restricts free press. So that's one thing. Another thing you brought up was uh, why the school book depository, I think, wasn't the way you said it, but that's what it made me think about. And the, the, this is, again, where history plays a role. Who owned the school book depository? Well, it turns out that the, the school book depository changed hands not long before the assassination, within a very short period of time. And it was bought by a friend of the oil industry who was a right-wing millionaire. And whether or not that was part of the plot, it, it certainly made it a lot easier for whoever the plotters were because they had an owner who was on their side. I believe he was even that. hunting in Africa or something like that with like an ex-Nazi or something. Right, right. That's right. He was out of the country. Nobody could tie him to it. That's right. I tell you, it's those connections where you start looking. I mean, have you looked into Ruth Payne at all and seen any of her connections? I've never really – I don't think you need to really talk about her to get people on board with the conspiracy side of things. But this like idea of like connection to the CIA, this is in the CIA, this is CIA, that's everywhere. Where I'm like, damn, where's the CIA when I want to be an informant? I'm telling you that much. Well, one of the one of the important connections when you talk about the pains is the white Russian community. They were people who in the previous generation had come to the United States from Russia around the time of uh, the 1919 revolution in Russia when it became a communist country. 
it's important to know little tidbits like uh, Nikolai Lenin, Nikolai, my goodness, anyway, Lenin and and uh, um, Trotsky were bought and paid for men. They weren't these radical revolutionaries, ideologues. It wasn't they were so completely convinced that communism was so good. It's that they were told that this is what needed to happen in Russia. They needed to get royalty out of control in Russia because certain millionaires and billionaires couldn't do their business in Russia the way they needed to. Leon Trotsky was in Maine in an apartment building paid for by millionaires right up to the moment he was sent to the revolution. That's not a real well-known fact. Um, when I say those people run the world, they do. Okay, their money determines what's going to happen. You can read about it with, with Hitler and how Hitler was basically controlled into believing that it was not Hitler's idea that the Jews needed to be eliminated. Uh, it was it was a doctrine that he was given, and and he, he was just this crazy kid, this pretty much off the rocker young guy, and he received direction, and, and he went the direction he did. And that's the way things have gone, okay? When you go back and study history, it's, we can study the Kennedy assassination, but it's critical to put it in the context of all of history so that you understand that it's not a unique event, that it's part of all kinds of events that went on during the 20th century that all went in the same direction, that kept certain people in power. When you think that the Kennedy assassination is probably one of the most important, I would consider it a house of cards. Because even if you get answers or the government releases whatever they got, and I don't think there's a smoking document on it. I don't think you're ever going to find out really who did it. But if there was an understanding that, okay, there is a real conspiracy here and the public is made aware of that conspiracy, it makes you question every single political assassination or every single thing out there that is deemed as one of these big controversial issues. 9-11, so many other things that come down the line that end up being chalked into the conspiracy realm. There's no trust anymore, and there's barely trust as it is now. It's the transparency aspect, which is why I think it's so important, like defining the term national security. We've gone way too long, and I I mean I read the church committee report, and I recommend that reading to anybody because it just gives you a base level of you know, this is an important thing you should look at. But if you're able to look at the national security issue, which is they can put that term on anything and not have to give you anything. And that is so stupid, and they do that with so many things now, and businesses follow that same model. YouTube does the same thing. If you get flagged for something, they leave it an open-door policy and do not tell you why you get flagged. It's just – I get it. You make the landscape, but when it comes to secret documents and things of that sort, I have come across way too many in the 22 release, one about someone getting a polio inoculation in the Central Intelligence Agency lunchroom because she heard – Five people talk about Kennedy needs to be dealt with within the next five years, and then she goes to this army medical facility, and she lost her memory. So it's like, what is that? There's literally nothing I can do with that. I just go, there's this. Here you go. But what I did find interesting is if you look up when Operation Mockingbird or what Operation Mockingbird is, you find in 63 for at least three months that there were media assets that were in line with the government to pitch certain stories and be able to label down misinformation or propaganda. Now, I found a document in the 22 release dated 65. Says covert news at the top, and it says get your media assets in line. We have some disinformation that's going around. You need to put it at the bottom. You need to basically bury it. And it's like, well, that's sixty-five. And if you Google what Operation Mockingbird is, it says ended in three months in sixty-three. So that's a lie. And now we have evidence that they kept on going. So does that mean it's still going today? And it doesn't even need to get into like I know everyone jokes like the media is trash and all this, but there is serious flaws that you can point out in the fact that there's a lot of things that are, have been running as fact and running as a part of history, and there's plenty of documentation to refute that that is wrong, much like the Warren Commission's report versus what they printed in the 26 volumes. The data doesn't match up. Yeah, interestingly, um, <laughs> if you go back to World War II, after World War II with Operation Paperclip, Operation Paperclip was, was the importation to America of the entire scientific and technical establishment of Germany. Those guys, Nazi or not, and Werner von Braun was a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi and racist. He used to hang the five slowest Jews at his rocket facility. Right, exactly. So they brought these people to the United States. They, they sent some of them down to uh, Latin America and South America, where they took over governments down there. 
and and held hands then with the intelligence agencies for decades. Um, you have to understand that 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 influence is very telling. We had all kinds of people who were empathetic, sympathetic with the Nazi movement in, in Germany prior to World War II and remained so during World War II. FDR had a, uh, uh, to, uh, Tommy Corcoran was one of his personal aides. Tommy was a fascist through and through. FDR wasn't, but one of his personal aides was. And he was one of the people that smoothed the way for, for individuals then to come to the United States um, after the war. Um, and, and the Nazi movement, the fascist movement, has thrived to this day. It never died because those families and those people were in powerful positions. They had a lot of money. They continue to have a lot of money. And, and our now current neo-Nazi movement is nothing more than a continuation of what we brought here ourselves because of people who are empathetic and sympathetic toward them and toward the philosophy. This deep intertwined or interconnected relationship we have with Nazis and things of the sort as well to people that built our space program. Have you looked into the, you know about the Nuremberg trials, but did you know that those technically didn't classify for us? I talked to a guy who worked at a prison where they were experimenting on prisoners with like cancer cell injections and a bunch of crazy stuff. And he was talking about the Nuremberg trials. He goes, yeah, that was for them and everyone else thought it applied to them as well too but there was never officially for america or any of that they could still continue under these unethical guidelines and it just you know we always blame the nazis for doing the worst stuff and i, I would raise unit 731 higher up than the nazis for the stuff that they did but it's always the nazis are the devil hitler's the devil don't be a hitler all this type of stuff well we're in like the same boat i mean to be honest with you i mean if we're look at our relationships and our history connected together and i think a lot of people don't know that and we don't teach it obviously because history is written by the winner and i don't think america is going to want to put its blemishes out there but it's also about like understanding this too because when we get in a point of conspiracy and all this type of stuff where you say something that is factual people just say conspiracy because they weren't taught that in school and i'm like Look, it's not supposed to make you hate your government, but it's also supposed to not end the conversation and just roll your eyes at it when you're looking at real documentation or real proof that this is real. Right. Well, when you talk about cancer experimentation and that sort of thing, one of the interesting side stories of the Kennedy assassination, Ruby. David Ferry. Well, oh, yeah, Ruby Ferry. Cancer. But the person who was experimenting with it leading up to in, in the couple of years prior to the assassination was Dave Ferry. David Ferry was not a scientist. David Ferry had been a pilot. He, he, was, he was outed as a gay man in the early 1950s and fired by the airlines. But he went to work in intelligence, and one of his last duties was working in cancer experimentation in Dallas, of all places, or in New Orleans, I'm sorry, of all places. And, and then who turns up with cancer and dies? Jack Ruby. Isn't that interesting? What a connection. You can't, you can't close the loop because there's too much information missing but you can certainly make a, a very broad inference. And, and it tells you a lot about what the United States government was doing. His cancer research was not about curing cancer. His cancer research was about how to give cancer, how to kill people with cancer. I have the documentation on Ruby. Um, that's one area that I probably know the most about, which is Ruby. I've been saying it months before Tucker Carlson said it, and forgive me for anybody who's listening that heard me said it before. But I can't prove what they gave him in a shot. There was four or five doctors that visited Ruby, um, psychiatrists, and the only one to administer him a flu shot for walking pneumonia was Luis Joyon West, who was in charge of the Haight-Ashbury clinics and all those things were drugging hippies during Operation Midnight Climax and part of the MK Ultra project. So yeah, he was the same therapist for Manson, same therapist for Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bomber, same therapist for Donald DeFries and the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Um, Whitey Bulger with the whole, I know a lot of people are talking about the MK Ultra aspect with him now, the LSD experiment on him and i can't prove what they gave them in a shot they never classified and there's no document that i've been able to find but what i did find was that out of the possible ways to make ruby talk you can use sodium pentothal which is truth serum and i mean if you give it a high enough dosage you can make it lethal basically um i mean i would say that would explain a lot of his talks where he's talking about genesis in some of his interviews that just don't make sense to me he looks high his eyes look glazed he looks like he's very disconnected now, he died in 67, so I can't say like, oh, from 64, that it was that long-term thing. No, but 
based on Judith Baker's work. And I don't, you know, she says some good stuff, I think. And one of the things she has is the x-rays where there was a hundred and over 200 or a hundred and some 26 x-rays that was given in a matter of two weeks. What he finally died by was he had needle marks in his leg, which they called it pulmonary carcinoma or something like that. But what they found as a secondary cause in his lung was cancer. So he stated they gave me cancer in a shot. We have that. That's in a document that's in his testimony. I mean, Joy on West is the craziest connection of having an MK Ultra doctor visit this guy out of all the people to visit them. And then through his psychiatric records, there is just a whole long list of just after the shot being insane. So that is the craziest and that is probably one of the most impossible things to be able to really narrow down and get a definitive answer on we have enough to get us to the point but the mk ultra documentation on it they destroyed so we don't know all i have is documents with Sidney gottlieb's name on it and joy on west and the kennedy assassination and then the 13 or 14 different reporters and presidents of time magazine or life and all this that are me meeting with some of these officials you know so there's there's all this smoking gun stuff. It's like it's perfect. They didn't need to destroy every document. They just kept all the smoking gun ones and decided to give the like the final end cut, the one, the last page that, that'll say everything all wrapped up in one. They just get that rid of that. And that's where we're at right now. Well, you have interesting names within MK Ultra. People like Theodore Ted Kaczynski. Kaczynski became an assassin, but he did it because he was so frustrated. He had been experimented on with LSD in MKUltra. And he was a PhD student at Harvard when he was taken into the study. And, and it basically destroyed his mind, and he knew it. And he kept going to the media and trying to get the media to listen. And, of course, with the intelligence connections of the media, they paid no attention to him, did not publicize him at all. So eventually, he, he went off the deep end. And became the Unabomber. And became the Unabomber. Then you have um, Dr. Timothy Leary, who was famous in the 1960s as, as the hippie LSD guy. And what they didn't tell you in the media was that he was a part of the MK Ultra program. That's where that all came from. Um, there's an, I forgot, there's another one. But anyway, you have all these different people who are involved in MK Ultra. They use it for training assassins. They use it for doing all kinds of things. The original, the original Manchurian Candidate movie with, uh, I, believe, I believe it was Cary Grant or Gregory Peck, um, was all about that. It was about a guy who had an implantation in his brain. Well, they fictionalized it and turned it into something else, but it was basically telling the story of what they did with MKUltra, at least with respect to in, intelligence work in, in one particular kind of situation. You know who was behind MKUltra? Do I know who was behind MKUltra? Alan Dulles. Originally, it was a German program. Well, I'll say that's Alan Dulles's MKUltra thing isn't uh, respected and credited to him. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and sure, he had everything to do with bringing it here, but but all the original experimentation was from Germany. They just imported it here after World, after World War II. Damn, I was about to say, because that really lines up if you got Alan Dulles in charge of the Warren Commission, and then you have J uh, Ruby be visited by Luis Joy on West. I'm like, you could easily make a phone call and let that happen. I mean, I doubt I, he knew everything that was going on in that MK Ultra project because there was just so much going on. But there's like uh, – when you start talking about stuff like this, if you don't have your documentation on it, people are just like, oh, oh no, that can't be true. Like I have it – so made documentation on the MK Ultra stuff because it is an interest of mine. It was an interest long before I talked about the Kennedy assassination when I had Stephen Kinzer on here talk about MK Ultra um, and Sidney Gottlieb and those connections and stuff. But it's just so dark when you think about people dressing up as hippies and drugging random civilians. And that's like, what is that? I mean, even with Manson, they could have got Manson on any charges, prostitution charges, drug charges, uh, anything. But the, the police were told to stand down. And it was like, from what? Oh, the document says from higher authority. Who is the higher authority that decided to have Manson stand or have the cops stand down from getting Manson? And then Manson goes and commits these acts or whatever, and then they get him in court. And even then, Bugilosi, one of the prosecutors, happened to put uh, another prosecutor on the defendant's team to sabotage the case. And it's like, look, I don't think Manson would have should have been free. But at the same time, I also believe in a right to a fair trial. So it's kind of like there's a lot of this where you realize like the system, you get to see the real system, like the actual like being set up to fail in a sense. You know, if you're going to be the patsy like Oswald, they're going to make sure everything comes out there on you. And the best part about Oswald being killed by Jack Ruby was during their investigation, they didn't have to worry about his rights. They could have just thrown anything on him and it's going to stick. 
Right. And interesting, one of the most one of the most fascinating things Charles Manson ever said is the same thing so many criminals say, but he really meant it. He had absolutely no recollection at all of, of the event. None. Zero. Which is exactly what those drugs can, can do. So, yeah, they wiped out his memory. Isn't that scary? I mean, that, you start learning that type of stuff. You're just like, damn, it's like, might as well go sit, drink some moonshine and sit under a tree and just wait for the end. <laughs> well, in my own, in my own life, when I was, when I was in Rockford and was at Rockford, Illinois, and was the city alderman thinking about running for, uh, for the Senate. Um, back in that day, back in the early 1960s, place in Chicago, famous place called McCormick Place, which is a great convention center burned to the ground and the Chicago politicians wanted to rebuild it, but they needed state money in order to get the hundreds of millions of dollars they needed to rebuild McCormick place. They had to cut a deal with downstate legislators and downstate agreed to fund $250 million for McCormick place, $250 million as a fishbowl for downstate cities to go after that money to build their own small convention centers. When I was on the city council in Rockford, the issue of building a convention center in Rockford came up. They were already building a couple of other, other cities downstate. And Rockford wanted to go after a $20 million grant. And in order to go after it, they had to put, put forth a proposal. And our city uh, development department wrote a proposal that cost about $100 million. It involved ingress and egress highways, roads from, from the interstate out east of the city to come downtown, uh, renovation of all kinds of buildings, tearing things down, building the, the new. But, but we were only getting $20 million from the state out of that pool. We had a budget of the entire city at that time, $46 million a year. And we're talking about $100 million of funding for one project. It was an impossibility. It was insane to even think about it. But that's what politicians do, especially when they're bought and paid for. Well, I was one of, of two aldermen, both Republicans, who opposed the funding and I was articulate. I was in the media all the time. And, and the press just loved me, especially since I was on the opposite side of the issue. Well, at City Hall, uh, I was on a block on, on Main Street that uh, on one end of the block was a, was a little restaurant and pool hall down in the basement uh, and a bank. And, and the other end was City Hall. And then across the street from City Hall was a little bar. And... When I was in high school, I, I worked at the bank as a runner down at the other end of that block. And I used to go up to the, to the bar uh, sandwich shop across the street from City Hall for lunch when I, when I was working. And I, and I was this high school kid. And I was shy, you know, and all these businessmen in suits and everything. So I always went to the very back booth and, and sat there and listened to, to people and, and read my books. I always had my book open. And one day, the classical Italian bartender, his name was T-Berry. Nickname was T-Berry. Came from the bar and he walked back and and right behind me was the payphone. And restaurants back in the day you had payphones on the wall behind the last booth. And so he would sit there and make phone calls. And one day I heard him set up a judge in a murder case. And I talked to my friends about it, told people about it. Well, years later, I'm on the city council, like 10 years later, I'm on the city council. And I used to go over there with all the other councilmen because that was our watering hole. We'd meet there before and after. Uh, city council meetings and make our plans and do our deals and so on. So this one night in the middle of all this debate about funding, and I'm in strong opposition to the to the Metro Center, um, I walked over there uh, after the, the council meeting was over, waiting for the guys to come over. We could talk. Nobody came in. Nobody came in. There was nobody in the restaurant, just me. And, just, and I don't know if it was pure coincidence or T-Berry had shoot him out or what. But finally he came over and he rested his arms on the bar and he leaned over from it. And he's got his white smock on and his slick back dark hair. And he said, Ronnie, I ever tell you about Alderman Smith? And I said, no. He said, well, he said, you know, he was a ne'er-do-well. He said, he, he just wouldn't go along with anything. You know, this would come up and he'd oppose it and that would come up and he'd oppose it. You couldn't get the guy to agree. And he said, you know, one day his wife went out to get the milk. Now you have to know back in those days, Milk was delivered by a milkman on the porch in a box, okay? We had it in our house when I was a kid. And he said, he went out to get, his wife went out to get the milk off the porch. And she lifted the lid and it exploded, blew up and killed her. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, that wasn't meant for her. 
<laughs> Two months later, I didn't live in that city anymore. I resigned. At the other end of the block that that, that, that little bar was on was the state representative's house, or not uh, office, excuse me. And his name was Idolo Zeke Georgi. And he was the mob's connection in Rockford. Rockford was a mafia city. Uh, I went to school with Al Capone's grandkids. Um, literally, I did physically. You know, they were there. And and I knew when he told me the story, who that was meant for. And I knew that most likely my, my family would be dead if I didn't go along. And so I, I left. And that that informed me as a human being when I wrote my book, needless to say. Yes, I also wrote about the mafia and the mafia's involvement. I don't think the mafia was was the biggest player by any stretch of the imagination. I think I think it was the politicians in Texas who were at the federal level, who influenced the federal level. It's interesting that the HSCA, like Blakey, went after that a lot. Even when I had Blakey on here talking about it, he was definitely like, Avi, that's his organized crime is kind of his thing, you know, that's before even the assassination and everything. But to me, it was just, I've had to learn more about who they were, Traficante uh, being one. Um, mostly I had to learn about what was the statement from the reporter that claimed that he saw Ruby visit Traficante in prison, um, in Castro's prison. And it comes from one guy, but he happened to guess it correctly when I think it was the not the church committee, but it might have been the church committee that exposed that. Yeah, Ruby was in Havana in 59 visiting Traficante, just like that reporter said. And it was like that guy had either a one in a million guess at 10 years later, they would be able to or not 10 years later, almost like eight years later, nine years later, be able to guess correctly. That that was Ruby visiting Traficante, which made me look into the whole organized crime as well to Sam Giancana, Johnny Rosselli. There's just a bunch of names that start coming up, and I never thought it was the mob that did it, but I had to learn more about them because there is a lot of connections when it comes to just organized crime, which I think is a big way to get people on board with it. Look, if they're trying to assassinate Castro and they're using the mob to do it, the only reason that you don't say it doesn't work in the Kennedy assassination is because of – it's your president. And I go, this just lets you know what the CIA can do. They don't necessarily need to have the mob kill President Kennedy. They could just find an offhand hitter or something like that. But there is real there's there's a division point that I heard from Eric Wilson, who actually recommended your book to me. Um, and he's like, you can't confuse the people who did the act to the people that covered it up. There are two types of people here. It can be an agency, sure. I always blame the military-industrial complex, and I know people want individual names, but I would point to people with a really long track record of corruption like Hoover and Alan Dulles and other names of this sort that were able to sway it. But there is someone who did it, and then there's people that covered it up, and what we can document very heavily is the cover-up. Now, what was that cover-up for because it was a part of it? Maybe. What was it for because they did a horrible job investigating it? Maybe. What was the cover up then? And that's where it's like trying to show the public that to where like, look, if you can get on board with the cover up, then let's get into the specifics and the dynamics of like how the thing actually went down. And then I think enough people and it's just about getting the general public on board. I mean, all the other independent researchers, your research as well, too. It's important, especially for a younger generation like myself. I mean, I've only been in it for almost a year now. And it's consumed my life, but it's just at this point, it's like when you see an injustice and you just want people to be aware of it. And it's like people just either just don't care or they are worried about what tomorrow is going to bring. Right. Well, there's no question that Ruby was the connection of the mob to the assassination was Jack Ruby more than anything. Johnny Rosselli, of course, as, as an assassin. Um, and, and you can tie them in in many other ways. The, the mob had an interest in getting rid of Kennedy. The intelligence community, some of them, had an interest in getting rid of Kennedy. The oil men had an interest in the, the convergence of people and forces against John Kennedy was just utterly amazing. When he fired Dulles, removed him as the director of the CIA, not long, not much later, he was dead. Uh, Kennedy was dead. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was threatened by Kennedy, but he he had enough control that I don't think I don't think he was really a part of the assassination, but I think he had a very strong interest in keeping it covered up. So he didn't really do, do his job and his men didn't do their job. Um, 
in terms of public opinion, public opinion turned against the Warren Commission within a year of its publication. And public opinion has never, ever thought that it was anything other than a conspiracy. There, there are some people, of course, who, who don't agree with that. But most of the public never did believe the government. There's an old, old, old saying, the truth will out. And whether you know all the details or not, you can certainly have a sense of something that is the truth. And it's virtually an inescapable conclusion that it was not a, it was not Lee Harvey Oswald one-off killing somebody. It just wasn't. It was much deeper than that. Listen, I'm going to have to cut this short. I yeah, hope you don't mind. It's fine. No, you gave me enough of your time. I just have one last question for you, and we could wrap up. But do you think the only reason the conspiracy doors really opened enough to get all this years of research and investigation in was because of the fact that Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald? I think that was one trigger. I think the second trigger was the summary volume of the Warren Commission itself. I think the summary volume was so crappy, so poorly done, that people started digging and looking. And you had investigative reporting. Investigative journalism really took took foot in the 1950s and 60s. And with investigative reporters who weren't in on things and who weren't part of things and who weren't directed by the intelligence community, you had way too many Way too many leaks. Way too many people who are pointing things out. And then you get to the you get to the uh, to the late nineteen seventies when the House Assassination Committee (HSCA) starts looking at this whole thing, and and all these people start dying who are going to be interviewed. <laughs> I mean, there was no way you could keep a lid on it. Media were just blossoming. When I was a kid in nineteen sixty three, there were only three television channels. That's it. And and with the proliferation of information, especially with digitization beginning in the 1970s, you couldn't keep it. You couldn't keep a lid on it. It was impossible. Well, Ron, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links and also where your book will be published once it gets re-edited? Well, I I'm I guess I'm lazy about that. I've got I've got a Facebook site for JFK Scorpio Rising. I've never really done anything with it. Um, I, I bought the, the website originally, JFK, Scorpio Rising, and I let it go. I've, I've had so many other things that I do with my life that I just, it's not my primary focus, even though, even though I ended up writing a 700-page book about it, it, it was my avocation, not my number one focus. So how to find me, I'm Ron White on Facebook. <laughs> That's about it, really. And I'll link all those uh, links in the description, your Facebook page for your book, and also uh, your Facebook as well, too. And I appreciate the time you gave me to talk, and thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Link Podcast.